0: Hi, and welcome to another Economic Commentary here in Singapore. I'm Stuart Bergman. In our last Economic Commentary, I focused on Canada's trade diversification imperative and why a softening domestic economy and our declining international market share underscore the importance of expanding to new international markets. In developing Asia, for example, potential growth is more than 5%, easy, with the fastest growing economies capable of sustaining growth in the 6 to 7% range. Now, where does this growth come from? Well, huge population for one, with Asia Pacific being home to more than half of the world's inhabitants. This year, India is set to surpass China as the world's most populous country, and South Asia will continue growing for decades. But population growth in and of itself isn't a guarantee of economic success, is it? It doesn't guarantee that these billions will live well, eat well, buy more homes, drive fancier cars. No rising income is responsible for that. And in this regard, changes to the age structure of many Asian economies are very telling. Because while the median age in China is rapidly approaching that of some of our older, less dynamic developed economies, aging populations here in Southeast Asia will see more young people entering the workforce. With fewer children and elderly dependents to look after, dependency ratios will continue to plummet, putting these economies in sort of a demographic sweet spot with more people being able to earn money and now keep it, the region is experiencing higher levels of wealth accumulation. In 1980, the average Singaporean earned 25% less than their Canadian counterpart when adjusting for the cost of living. Today, that Singaporean earns more than double their Canadian counterpart, and by 2027, that'll balloon to almost two and a half times. Beyond Singapore, many countries in the region have seen income growth of between 6 to 7% a year for the last 30 years. This means that since the early 90s, income levels in many Asian economies have surged by five to eight times. While today we point to the US consumer as the driver of global growth, the middle class in Asia is already bigger than it was before the pandemic. And this is only gonna continue with the middle class in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, set to rise sharply. In fact, by 2030, South Asia will add 40% of the world's new middle class consumers with 1 billion new entrants. And together with China, will be home to more than half of the world's purchasing power. Since the middle class tend to be disproportionately urban, better educated and have smaller families, this is going to influence the way their money is being spent. Having less children, for example, will give middle class parents the ability to afford better quality education. They'll invest more in healthcare, nutrition, higher protein diets, with particular volumes coming out of countries like Indonesia. More women will also join the workforce, giving families a chance for more personal consumption and creating demand for consumer durables. And what's notable here is the sheer number of people in this part of the world who will be in the position to make these purchases for the very first time, implying growth rates far more exciting than what we tend to see among our traditional trade partners. Having one of the world's highest food self-sufficiency ratios, this dynamic presents opportunities for Canadian companies all along the agri-food value chain, from producers of fertilizers and agricultural commodities, to providers of expertise in ag tech, suppliers of prepared food products, and even those in food retailing and distribution. What about cars? We know a thing or two about making cars and car parts. Well, beyond China, which is now the world's largest auto market, there are strong long-term growth prospects for countries like Indonesia, the Philippines in Vietnam as rising disposable income and urbanization create demand for vehicle ownership. When viewed through the lens of technological innovation, shifting consumer preferences and regulatory trends, we're also seeing a move toward EV technologies and the strengthening of local EV supply chains in countries like India. Rapid urbanization will need to be met with corresponding levels of infrastructure development, requiring roads, railways, ports, airports to expand commerce. People are gonna need housing, improved water supplies, sanitation, education, healthcare facilities to increase productivity. They're gonna need mass transit systems, better solid waste management to improve living standards. Here too, there will be strong demand for clean and renewable technologies and opportunities in digital infrastructure as well. The bottom line? While it's easy to be distracted by the day-to-day durations of the market and the flurry of news around the global economy, we need to keep our eyes on the immutable structural trends that will shape the world that Canadian companies will be competing in over the long term. In setting a truly transformative strategy, looking in the rear view will tell us nothing. We need to think more about what trends around demographics, wealth accumulation, urbanization, technological disruption and the availability of land, labor, capital, tell us about where we need to be playing and how we can set Canadian companies up to be competitive as if our future depends on it, because it does. This week, special thanks to Lily May and Nadim Rizwan in our Economic and Political Intelligence Center. As always at EDC Economics, we value your feedback. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, please email us and we'll do our very best to consider them in future editions of the commentary. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.